my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Sybil Ackerman Munson. She is the president at Do Your Good LLC. Sybil is a philanthropy professional with over two decades of experience working with donors to establish best funding practices that will help them to avoid costly mistakes and instead make a true and impactful difference in the world. She has a JD from Lewis and Clark Law School, a master's degree from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and a BS from Scripps College. She has helped donors give away over $45 million in large and small donations throughout the course of her career. She's worked with almost every type of charitable funder, from smaller family foundations and public charities to individual donors. So this isn't um, the normal kind of guest that I have on. but you will see why I was so interested in, in having her on uh, to talk about what she does and, and why it's important to our community, the, the public safety professional, the, the combat vet with PTSD, the, the small business entrepreneur. Um, so without any more of that, let me thank you, Sybil, for coming on and uh, sharing your story with me and, and really helping educate some of my peers and, and those that um, may want to give to some nonprofits. Yeah, so. I, I, I think that this is a great fit. I, you know, I was listening to your podcast and I was a very excited to be invited here because you are talking with folks who have lived big lives and who know what it means to give back and can do it really effectively because you've lived the journey. And so then you're giving back to people who may also have had really challenging experiences and you're, you're actually helping folks then really give back to their community so that people can be really wonderful, productive members of our society. So, you know, hats off to you for trying to talk about that and this work. And so, you know, I'm just really looking forward to talking to you about both, you know, let's say your listeners are interested in creating a nonprofit from scratch, or your listeners are working and thinking about, okay, well, I've had this life journey and this experience, and I'd love to really give back. And either they want to give back by creating the nonprofit because they have time on their hands to be able to do that, or they might have some extra money to be able to give back and they want to give to a nonprofit that they know exists or they might have a little extra time and they wanna maybe sit on a board of a nonprofit they love. And so that's where my expertise lies is I started my own business to focus on that, to connect nonprofits, great people doing good work on the ground 
with amazing people who might have extra means and want to give back. So let's talk about that more. Right. Um, well, first, I, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Um, and, and I always start off at the beginning. So where were you born and raised? And, and what was your early life like growing up? Um, you know, I, I feel like that's where it all kind of comes together and you start making decisions about your future and what's important to you. Uh, but also some very important experiences. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I love that question, too. I mean, and it's interesting, because, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, I grew up with a really wonderful, loving family. And I feel really lucky that they have always asked me to dream big, and always to think about how I can give back. So in as I was growing up, I was always reminded, yes, Sybil, you are growing up in this wonderful, loving family, and you have a responsibility, therefore, to give back. So that was that was the first piece. And anytime I talk to like my dad or my mom about things, they're always asking me to dream big. What is the thing that you want to do to help society and help the community? So I sort of, and our dinner table conversations were always like that too. My dad would start out with a question usually, and then we'd have a discussion around that question. Um, because you can probably guess by talking about my, how I'm talking about this, my parents are both professors. <laughs> so I grew up in a very academic, uh, conversation, rich household. However, there was a, there were some struggles I had that I over had to overcome. And I think that they, um, really lend themselves to where I'm at now in, in my, how I've created my own business and that kind of thing. The first thing is I grew up in an academic household with a learning disability and I uh, didn't really know it at the time. I, it was, I, I grew up in the East Coast and I grew up in New York and in New Haven, Connecticut. And, um, and in, I was born in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. And I, at that time, that was in the 80s, there really wasn't a whole lot of um, like identifying what a learning disability is. And, and they called it learning disability rather than other words. And so you always felt like it was like an other, it was an othering of things. And you just, and, and I was sort of brought up in, in a household that was extremely intelligent. And so I didn't really understand. I actually realized what was going on when I took the PSATs and, um, and I did terribly, you know, very, very low percentage, but then all the other students around me, I was at a private school, gotten like the 98th percentile, 90th percentile. And I was like way down there. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> what does this mean? Um, and at the time I was tested, but it, they didn't really good. It wasn't really like thorough. And so they said, oh, you're fine. You're just fine. You know? So go ahead, keep going. But I did feel very much like I was super struggling and, you know, the traditional educational system didn't, wasn't conducive to the way my brain worked. Um, and so when I was younger, I just sort of grew up feeling less than, um, even though my parents didn't, didn't do anything to make me feel bad about it, but it was just sort of like their professors at Columbia and at Yale and all those different places. And here I was at the best private schools, but I was really struggling. Um, and so at that point I had really a lot of, um, really a lot of challenges in terms of feeling, feeling like I was actually suicidal for a while. Um, I was, I went to psychologists, but it was like, I would sit in this little chair and there was this big old guy behind a huge desk 
who would just not say anything and stare at me <laughs> like I was less than again. Um, so, and, and I don't think, I mean, my parents, again, loving, wonderful people, but they were like top of their class in school. They were, they went to graduate schools at Yale and Harvard and things. They are undergrad at Harvard and grad at Yale. My mom went to Wellesley, like all of those things. I would never, I couldn't get into those schools in the beginning. Now I did go to Yale at, at graduate school and I can tell you that journey and how I ended up figuring out how to do well, despite my disabilities, but it was a journey. It really was to try to figure those pieces out. And what it also taught me is that, um, and maybe, maybe I shouldn't say it taught me, but what I started learning over time is I started learning about when I went to college, I did go to college. I didn't get into almost any of the colleges I applied to, but there were a few that looked beyond the paper challenges, like the SAT kind of things. Cause I always did terribly on those tests and they looked at the other stuff and they let me in. And, um, those that I went to Scripps College down in Claremont and they looked beyond those challenges. So when I went and got, went there, they, the teachers, their professors, there focused on my strengths. And that was where I started learning and I had space to learn in a way that my mind worked. And then I started excelling and getting all A's and doing really well. And I also learned how to study which actually means that now I'm really, really successful at business. And a lot of my friends who've got straight A's, they were really struggling in life because for me, what I learned is never procrastinate, make sure that I have lots of buffer days, make sure that I'm have my eye on the prize. Like I have to be very focused on the, where I want to be in one, two, three years and work towards that. I can't get away with all nighters. I will fail even now. <laughs> and, and then lean into the things I'm good at, but also challenge myself <laughs> to do better at the things I'm not as good at and be okay with failing because I have learned so much with my failures. And I actually feel like I'm a really empathetic person now and able to be successful at facilitating conversations and helping connect nonprofits with donors. And really a lot of the stuff I'm doing now, because of the fact that I was you know, trying to think through those next steps. So that's, that's just been my journey and where I'm at. And, um, and now I'm just 110% happy. And I own, you know, the thing that they called it a disability for me, I feel like I'm glad I'm grateful for that challenge. I just think that the fact that I am who I am now, and I am super happy in where I'm going. And it's because of my quote unquote disability because the disability, I also am really, really good at other stuff, way better at other stuff than other folks around me with empathy, with some other stuff. And I own that now too. I don't just look at the weaknesses. And I think that I, I appreciate that so much because of the fact that I've, I have challenges that it's, you know, I'm not perfect in, in any way, shape or form. Well, so I'd love talk, to keep talking about that, but I, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, can you, can you talk a little bit about that discovery process where, mm -hmm you you figured out what your learning disability was and so you were able to learn in spite of it or find ways to learn even with your learning disability yeah well so um the first thing is okay there are a couple there's a couple of pathways around this um you know i i didn't think i had a learning disability like i didn't 
didn't think it was there. I just thought I wasn't smart because there was no, the test said I was fine when I did it in high school. And I just thought I was stupid, right? So that's why I sort of spun and got really suicidal and depressed. And I'm saying all this very matter-of-factly now, I didn't know that was what was really going on when I was younger. But I look back, I'm like, oh, that makes sense, okay? Um, and then when I got to college, like I said, the professors there, um, I want really credit if quite a few of them for really noticing the, the talents I had and then having me lean into those and supporting me there. However, I still had you know serious... Uh, questionable, like I was seriously questioning where I was headed. And at the time that was in the late eighties, people were just starting to like give kids with depression medicine. So they gave me something called like norepinephrine. I think it was called that, that wreaked havoc on me. <laughs> it was like, I was like a Guinea pig, right? It was so interesting that way. But then what I, um, in terms of the kind of things that, that made me realize, like that got me out of all of that was out of that downward spiral and instead using it to be a springboard to success is when I was in my early twenties and I was at school and the professors were starting to lean, lean into the things I was good at. That also gave me the space to figure out what is it that I loved to do. And for me personally, I realized that what I really cared about at the time was I was really worried about climate change. And I was saying, oh my gosh. And this was in the, you know, nine, early, early nineties, late eighties. And it was when people were first starting to talk about it. And there was also this thing called the chlorofluorocarbon CFCs. And there was a great agreement that was done called the Montreal protocol to like decrease that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's things people can do. You know, it's, we don't, aren't hopeless and we can work together. I'm very collaborative. And then I started getting really passionate about doing something about that work that in that world. And, um, and I started volunteering in that area with some nonprofits and started getting straight A's in college almost straight A's in college because I was leaning into the thing I cared about. And I realized if I wrote papers, you know, art, you know, I would write um, as long as I gave myself enough time. And I loved doing research papers because I could go around and interview people. And that was what I realized I loved to do is talk to people, interview people, figure out like how to find solutions with lots of different opinions about something and the environmental issues. There's so many different opinions. How do we find common ground? And I loved that. And I found as long as I gave myself enough time, I could, I maybe had to write 15 drafts of something. Um, I'd be totally fine. And that's when I started learning about how to visualize the end result of success and make sure I just gave myself enough time to go towards that area of success. And then what happened was when I did really well, I um, said to myself, I can start dreaming bigger. I'm going to go to law school. Why don't I do that? Because I didn't actually really want to be a real lawyer lawyer, but what I wanted to be was someone who knew the law so that when I could go into like negotiations or help pass laws through lobbying or something that could really help make a difference. And so um, I knew still that the LSAT, you have to take these tests as bubble tests. I knew I would really struggle with that. But I was like, and I knew law school would be a huge struggle for me too, because the they always do like these tests at the end of each thing that each course, it's not like you write a lot of papers. I knew I would struggle there, but I'm like, I really want to learn that anyway. I just have to get over the fact that I'm going to get C's. <laughs> it's okay. And so I did that. I went to law school 
and I had special, I'd like spent hundreds of hundreds of hours on the LSAT test taking. It means I didn't get into a lot of the fancy law schools, but I got into one. It only took one, you know, and they liked, they cared about me as a person. They actually wrote me a personal letter to have me go. It was Lewis and Clark law school. And so you find these things as long as you put yourself out there. And I got rejected from like six of the law schools I applied to. So what? I just took one and I got into like actually a couple of it, one other one, you know? So that's the kind of thing is visualizing that. And then I started realizing, so what if I fail a little bit? Like there's people who are going to bring you in if you have the energy and the interest and you have your vision. Um, But again, it made me very much more empathetic to like people trying to struggle and figure it out. And so then when I got out of law school though, um, what I realized was all of these, and when I was in law school, I had to train, I studied like crazy. I, my friends would go out and do other things. I'd be like, nope, studying 13 hours a day, easy reading. And I would still get C's, but I, that was what I had to do is to keep doing that. And um, again, you're asking me, okay, how did I do this? Nobody has told me I have a learning disability at this point. Okay, nobody, I, I, I'm supposedly just stupid. Okay. And, um, and my parents are brilliant professors and I'm stupid. How did that freaking happen? I don't know. And they, again, they did not make me feel bad, but still it's like, really, I'm just stupid. So you guys all go party and I'm just going to be stupid here in the thing, reading the stuff that you're going to get A's on and I'm going to barely get C's on, but that's okay. Smile about it. You know, anyway, a little grumpy, but smile. Okay. But, but then what I found was, um, once I got out, uh, well, oh, the way I found out that I have like a learning disability is I took the bar exam for law school, you know, after law school to become licensed. I failed it because <laughs> it's a bubble test. I studied so hard. I'm like, I'm going to pass and it's a pass fail. So I failed it. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't deal with this, you know? Um, but you can do a lot of other things with a law degree. I'm just not licensed. So I don't practice law and I don't recommend legal advice, but I loved my law, you know, the knowledge I got from it. And I never really wanted to be a real lawyer anyway. So I'm like, so we'll get over yourself. You know, it's okay. You don't have to pass the, you don't have to pass and get, get, get licensed in order to do the things you want to do. But I did end up um, getting tested after that because I thought maybe if I took, someone told me you could get extra time. At this point, it was like the late nineties and people were a little more sympathetic to this stuff. They're like, you could have more time to do the test if you're officially like have a learning disability. I'm like, really? Okay, great. So I took it. I took an official test and it, it did come back saying I had something called a learning disability. So um, at that point, it still was pretty rudimentary in that, in that sense. But at that point, and then what they told me for recommend, they recommended me like Sybil, okay, the way you can succeed is you give yourself extra time. You know, you're going to have to study a lot harder than, reg- than regular folks. And don't let people tell you you're overstudying, overstudy, like that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, that's what I already been doing for how many years? And at that point I was 27. <laughs> so it wasn't really that helpful, except when I decided I want to get, go to get my master's at Yale later, I had to take the GRE, which again was another challenging thing. Um, the funny thing was I applied to get extra time and I got a response saying, no, you don't need the extra time because you've been so successful <laughs> all your other stuff. We're not going to give it to you. So I was like, oh, that's funny anyway. But I actually was really <laughs> proud of myself. The GRE experience was, was actually like, I studied really, really hard and got good enough numbers so that Yale opened my, um, 
open my like resume. And at that point, my resume was pretty good because I went as a mid-career student. I already been working for like eight years and stuff. And so that was, it was a nice fit. Um, yeah. So that was my journey. And then really, like I told you though, the fact that I've had to be very diligent about working carefully with time, really focus on my outcomes for success. Um, I think that's served me so well as a professional. I'm going way off topic though. We can talk about actually <laughs> what, what I came on the show to talk about, which is how to be a great donor and give back. But I think that's, that was like set the stage for why now I just want to give, I want to give to folks and I want to help folks succeed in whatever area they want to succeed in to make the world a better place. So that is quite an incredible journey. Uh, like, I just can't imagine how challenging, but also on the, on, at the same time, like probably really rewarding and satisfying, you know, to like go like, look what I've done in spite of this. I agree, but also I'm, I'm appreciative that I did come from this family that was super supportive, right? Um, so I'm humble about that. And, but I do, I feel so full and happy and good. I mean, there's other pieces of my journey that I needed to go through in order to be self-empowered. Um, one of them that was so important was to decide to step out and create my own business because I am, I realized that I am really entrepreneurial and I work, I've worked within like, I've had regular jobs. Um, and after about three and a half years at a regular job, I'm like, okay, sort of get this. And I'm a little bit bored, <laughs> but as a, as my own entrepreneur, it's just so exciting and fun. And I own it, you know, like I own the revenue. I own the projects I decide to take. I own the projects I don't decide to take. Um, and so that's really fun and you can be creative and explore things. So that's fun. Well, how did you find yourself in this world of helping people give their money to good causes? Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in the nonprofit world for over a decade. And as one of well, part of that, I had to raise money, right? Cause I was, but I was actually a program person. I wasn't an official fundraiser, but I raised money for my projects. Cause you, that's what you do. And I got to be close with a few donors who funded the work and they funded all the different jobs I had. They were so supportive. And then one day, one of the donors that had been funding my work, he pulled me aside and he said, Sybil, I no longer want to be like a program officer of my foundation. I want to be a trustee. He already is a trustee, but he wants to be just the trustee. He asked if I'd run his foundation. And I said, you're kidding me. I would love that. I had no idea what it meant. <laughs> like, what does it mean to give money away? Is How hard could it be? I thought it's actually fairly hard to do well. Um, but, and also I didn't ask the right questions like, okay, who, who, which, who, who's on the board of your foundation? Do you get along with them? Is it your family members or, you know, that kind of thing? I was really lucky. Uh, it was a brother and sister and they get along great, you know, so it all worked great. I jumped in and with all feet in and, and uh, ran his foundation as a full-time executive director for quite a few years. And um, he was a great mentor and he really supported the work I was doing and he's somebody that was always looking out for people who were sort of younger and had a lot of energy. And he pretty much just was like, you are an activist with money now. You like should recommend to me the best things you think should happen. And he like did almost something like, I don't know if you've heard of something called trust-based philanthropy, but it's a whole movement now within the philanthropic 
sector that's saying you really need to trust the nonprofits and your staff to do the right thing. And he was sort of one of those kind of people way before the idea or the word trust-based philanthropy even happened. So I did that with him. I, I was his executive director and him and his sister. And um, then after about three and a half years, it's like the magic number, um, other families started coming to me and saying, Sybil, I'd love it if you would work for us. And I said, I'm not leaving this family. They're, they're the best family that I've, I'm working for. They're awesome. But they said, well, how about if we contract you or do something else? So I said, that's an interesting idea. So I came to the first family and I said, is it okay if I contract as well with some other families? And they thought that was a great idea to their credit. They said, you know, if you're working for other folks with similar interests, that just helps us. It helps them. Um, and so I started doing that over time. And once folks started hearing that I had a business they could contract me with, they contract with me with, I um, started getting more and more requests. And so over time, the first family that I was working for, I ended up flipping them into my business. So we could get a little silly that I was like working for them, but then contracting on the side. So I, I still do everything I did for them when I started working for them in 2008. Um, but I also work for a lot of other families that are quote unquote, smaller family foundations. They give away anywhere from 500,000 to a million to 2 million a year. To me, that's not small. That's a really significant amount of, of investment that they can give back to their community. And so I, my, my expertise is really in how do you do uh, smaller grants again, not really small, but like 10 to 20 to $30,000 to local nonprofits. And then, um, but I also have been contracted by um, philanthropic institutions that are interested in um, working together. Like I, I help lots of different donors come together on an issue. So for example, I'm working with a bunch of donors now who've started something called Renewal Philanthropy, which helps end injustice around the world, focusing on survivor-driven change. So supporting kids who are have escaped slavery and other significant situations, um, supporting them in their life to come back and then become uh, champions for the cause as well. So I've, I've not only do I work for family foundations, but I also sort of advise donors, help people come together and do giving strategies. And I also get pitched by like over 200, well, I process over 200 proposals a year, which means I talk to almost that many nonprofits a year who are pitching me as well. And so I have a lot of experience sort of seeing both lots of different kinds of donors, how do they approach issues and lots of different kinds of nonprofits and how do they do their pitches and what works and what doesn't. And so that's why during the COVID time, when I had a little extra time, I decided to create another arm of my business. And this might be linked to like my history with working with or being from a family of professors and teachers is I was like, I feel like I have a responsibility. Like I've gathered so much information from all the different donors I work with and all the different nonprofits. I really understand now, like what kind of donor, how, how can a donor do a good job? And I've also seen plenty of times when they've really screwed up and wasted money, left money on the table, wasted money, spent tons of unnecessary time in the nonprofits. And then I've also worked with so many nonprofits. And so that's what Do Your Good is all about is I've created mini courses, free resources, a weekly podcast where I interview donors about their strategies and nonprofit professionals to really get into some of those issues. Yeah, could you tell me a little bit about a giving strategy? Uh, I've never heard of that, um, but clearly it's a thing. So 
I it is. Yeah. And that's when more. I, yeah. When I was laughing and I was like that, that first family um, asked me to run their foundation and I was laughing. I'm like, how hard could it be to give money away? And I'm like, of course I'd want to do this. It's actually really hard because I guess before I talk, well, I guess I'll talk about the giving strategy and then I'll talk about why it's actually important to have one. Um, because I, I want to have some, give you some examples of like the problems that you're going to get, get into if you don't. So the, with a giving strategy, the first thing that's most important is if you have some money to give away and you say, I really want to give this money away to an important cause before you even say the word important and put any judgment around the fact that you want to give money away, look into yourself and think carefully about what you are doing in your daily life and who you are and what your passions are. The reason I say that is if you do that first, you will find a do good nonprofit connected to that, no matter what you care about, even if you're, oh, how could I possibly, you know, I'm doing this and that, and, but that's not really doing good in the world. You're wrong. No matter what you're doing, there's something connected to it that can really help people and community. So let me give you an example. So let's say, um, so, well, first let me talk to you about my strategy and then I'll give you an example. Um, so my strategy is there's four things that I think you should journal about first before you even give away one cent. And the first thing is think about what you do every day and write it down. What are your daily activities? So it might be taking your kids to school. It might be going on a run. Um, you have a job. You might have a job that you go to. You might have two jobs you go to. Just write all that down. And the next thing I want you to do is think about your hobbies. Your hobbies might be something you do every day, but it also might not be. So I just want you to write those all down. And then the third thing that I want you to do is think about your favorite place to be. So that might be just like once a year or once every five years or once every 10 years, but it might be a poor, it might be some like thing that just keeps you centered, right? So let's say you're super stressed out and you'll be like deep breath and you're imagining a place you like to be and write that down. The fourth thing that I think is equally important to those first three is what are the things that stress you out? And it's okay to write any of them down, no judgment on any of this stuff. Okay. So it might be like you look at, then you look at it and it's like you've journaled and be a bazillion different things on there. But what you're going to find is that there's some things that have through lines between all four of those things. And that's the thing you should fund. The reason I feel so strongly about that is what that means is if you pick something that's linked to something you do in your daily life and, or a hobby or any of those pieces, you're going to have friends, colleagues, coworkers, who know about that issue too. You're going to already have some knowledge about that issue. And why that's so important is you're not going to come in from the outside. Then you're going to know the right questions to ask. You're going to already care about it. And it'll, it'll help you also have a long-term giving strategy in the issue you end up funding. Because if you become a fickle funder and just do a little bit here and a little bit there, you might lose your passion for it and stop giving. And that's, we don't want that, right? So um, let me give you an example of what I mean by like, you shouldn't have any judgment. So like a lot of mistakes I see some donors make in the beginning is they come to me and they're like, I want to give money away. So what's the biggest and most important issue, Sybil? And I'll spend hundreds of hours figuring out like what I think the biggest, most important issue is. And they'll be like, eh, I'm not interested. <laughs> you know? like, and that's not good. They've spent money on my on time for me and they, it's just not good. 
So instead, 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 and that's because they're coming in it with judgment. They're thinking that society is thinking there's like maybe climate change or the big issues. Okay. So let me just use me as an example. I love horseback riding. Okay. But you know, you might originally initially think, oh, well, horseback riding, that's just fun. That's nice. It's everything else. However, there's all these amazing nonprofits that work with horses to help people, um, make their lives, empower them in their lives, or they're actually nonprofits that are, um, rehabbing horses that are off the racetrack, hundreds of different, great, wonderful nonprofits doing good work with horses. If you had initially said, oh, I, I have judgment around that. And I'm only going to work on the big heady issues. These are issues that are important. You know, people who are, have nonprofits that are helping people who are recently incarcerated, who are working with animals, wonderful, there's wonderful programs like that. So that's why I'm saying that's the first thing that you want to do, because if you don't, you're not only going to not be educated about the issue, you're not going to be interested over time. So I'll stop there for a second though, and, and you can ask me more questions, but then I'll go into like some examples of why, if you don't do this work, you can leave money on the table, but. I really like that idea of writing down all these things and, and picking something that touches these different areas of your life, because you're going to, I think, enjoy investing in that and feel more connected to it and could probably influence others to give to that same thing. Um, so I, I really like that idea of, of building a strategy to, to do that. And then what are some of the, like I, I remember seeing something, maybe it was in our conversation earlier where there have been times that people have, well, yeah, you just said it. People have invested in things where it, it wasn't a good fit and maybe they lost money or maybe the nonprofit wasn't a very good one to, to help out. Um, how, do you, how do you measure what's a good nonprofit and what isn't? I love that question. So the first thing I want to say is that what is a good nonprofit depends on what you define as a good nonprofit. So once you've done the good, the work of figuring out what you want to fund, then you can decide if you can think about what it is you care about. Okay. So in terms of what a good, what defines a good nonprofit to you, is it important that that nonprofit has a very stable financial situation? Is that most important to you? Or are you more interested in a nonprofit that's moving the needle on a particular huge societal challenge like houselessness or mental health? And you're not as worried about their financial stability as you are about their success in the short term at moving the needle on something. And so that's what's linked to whether you think a nonprofit is a good nonprofit or not. I actually, in my years of working with donors, 
I see that there's three different kinds of donors that have natural predilections to certain ways of funding. And that also links to whether they think of a nonprofit as good or not. A sustainer kind of funder is somebody who loves specific nonprofits. It's deep in their heart. They don't, might, maybe there's some societal issues, but they're more into the nonprofit as being something that is helping them um, and helping their community than they are about like the big issue that needs to be changed. So let's say they're interested in um, making sure that people have food on the table, right? So they're funding food banks or donating to food banks year after year. They're a sustainer funder. And so if you're a sustainer funder, you do care about the financial stability of that organization. That's an important element to decide whether a nonprofit's a good nonprofit because you want that nonprofit around for years and years, okay? But if you're a campaigner kind of funder or a launcher kind of funder, a campaigner funder and a launcher funder, what they're most interested in is changing a societal norm like houselessness or climate change. And what I've been on my soapbox about is as a donor, you need to decide the kind of funder you are. If you're really, if you do your exercise that I talked about first and you say, the thing I really care about is this major societal norm needs to change in order to like house people, then you actually, the definition of a good nonprofit to you is a nonprofit that's working really hard to change that norm. That nonprofit may only be around for a couple of years because they're like pushing, 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 and then they might not be needed anymore. So you care more about changing the societal norm than you do about any one nonprofit. And so that means you might be less interested in the finances. I mean, you wanna be sure that nonprofit's legitimate and all that kind of thing, but you'll be more interested in the projects that they're doing and in their ability to accomplish what they say they're gonna accomplish. And that takes a really good, you know, you'll want to ask your friends and colleagues and coworkers, is this group, you know, going to be able to do that? A launcher funder is similar to a campaigner funder where they also care about changing the societal norm, but what they're going to focus on is looking at the gaps in the issue. So like, okay, there's a lot of groups that care about this issue, but are you doing, do you have a good communications plan? or is the science there, or, or there might be a gap in something so that we might need to actually fund that piece for like two to three years. And in that case, a good nonprofit might be some, a group that's telling you what the gaps are so you can help fill them. So there's a lot of different ways to, to slice it, but I really think it's helpful to think about, to think through what kind of donor you are first, and then you can, that translates directly into the kind of nonprofit you want to fund and whether you think you're successful at giving grants. And the reason I feel so it's so important there is if you don't think about this kind of thing and you go, okay, I'm just going to look at the financials of this group, but then you start getting grumpy because you're like, I really care about us find that this group is changing a societal norm, but it, it's not because it's working more on making sure there's food on the table for the for people. It's not working on the policy issues around that. Um, you can start getting frustrated and the nonprofit will be like, wait a minute, you aren't telling us really what you need. And so there's like that crosstalk that doesn't work well. Hmm. Now, for those individuals listening that have maybe just started a nonprofit or 
are considering starting a nonprofit, what what advice would you give to them uh, about maybe some some pitfalls of a new nonprofit? Um, you know, what are some pros and cons to doing it? Yeah, so I love the question. So you're talking specifically about starting a new nonprofit. Um, yeah, so if you're somebody who wants to start a new nonprofit, and it, there's a few things to think about. One is, is the issue that you want to start, is it something that the established nonprofits are saying to donors that is a gap that needs to be filled? And your biggest allies are going to be other nonprofits that help you. One mistake that I see is that a nonprofit will, or a person will come to me and say, I'm starting up a new nonprofit and they'll bring up the, the thing they're going to bring up. And since I'm a donor that does work with other nonprofits working in similar issues, I'll call those other nonprofits. Hey, do you know this person? Is it something that is a gap that needs to be filled? And they'll tell me one way or the other. So, you know, donors aren't going to just listen to you. They will talk to other folks or their friends or colleagues. And so you want to be sure that you are filling a gap that other nonprofits aren't already filling and that they're going to support you in it. And I know it sort of comes a little counterintuitive because in the business world, people are competitive with each other. And it does happen in the nonprofit world too, where nonprofits will be competitive with each other. However, if it's a gap that really needs filling, usually a nonprofit, no matter how big it is, they can be maxed out and they can actually, they'll really embrace the nonprofit that wants to come into that space because they'll say, look, we can't do this. We, we need your help. And that's really when it's going to work. If you start hitting up against a wall there and, and you feel like other nonprofits are sort of saying they're already doing the work, it actually might be. Um, so you might want to really like rethink your strategy or how you want to enter the field that way. The other thing is um, if you want to start a new nonprofit, um, finding a couple of launcher type of donors, the donors that love to start new things, that's key. If you find two or three people where those are, are foundations or people want to give and you bring it up with them and then you bring those donors together in a meeting and you say, hey, let's, let's start filling this gap and I think I can do this. That's great. Before you do that, though, make sure you have a plan and a really strong budget and a budget that shows the donors that in two to three years, or maybe you can do up to five years, but that you have a budget that shows, okay, you new, you launcher donors, you might need to give a whole bunch of money in the beginning, but over time, we are going to become a membership driven organization. And this is how we're going to get revenue in the future so that we're not going to just be dependent on you forever. So those are some sort of pieces that words of, words of wisdom, maybe <laughs> that I have about that. Yeah, that's, that's great. There, there's several nonprofits out there that I'm involved with that um, it, it's interesting because they're all centered around helping veterans and first responders. Great. And they all play a role. But there are gaps. And I, I feel like some of them are... Um, duplicates you know they're duplicating efforts and maybe it's because resources on this side of the country uh you know need to be available on that side of the country and 
you know, stuff like that. But I like that question. And, and sometimes there are duplicates and some of my funder colleague friends in certain areas, they've seen the duplicate so extensively of overlapping duplicative work that they've um, hired consultants to sort of work with the nonprofits to, to think through what those duplications are. And it's had wonderful results. So the nonprofits themselves aren't interested in spinning their wheels either. And so what's happened is funders have funded consultants at the desire, and also the nonprofits have asked for it though. It's not like top down, right? And so then the nonprofits can then talk together about, okay, how can we make sure we're not duplicating efforts? Because sometimes the duplicative part of it happens simply because nonprofits are stretched so thin, they're just trying to get the job done, you know? But other times it can look like nonprofits are doing duplicative work, but they actually aren't. Uh, they're, they already have talked and that kind of thing. So that's the other thing. Sometimes the donors I work with will say, hey, Sybil, why are we funding all of these same people that look like they're doing the same thing? And then when you actually talk with them, they're like, no, we're, we're, we're doing, we're playing key roles together in this particular area too. So that's the thing that's important. In, in all of the projects that you've been involved with, which one are you most proud of? I love that question. I think, gosh, there's so many different examples that I would love to talk about. Um, I think one area, one thing that I'm really proud of related to really, it's really around donors and funding. And then I can talk about some others too, but I worked on a contract with a community foundation and this community foundation had, was old and established and it had um, a lot of folks in it who are from the natural resources industries. And a lot of the newer donors that were coming into this community foundation were very interested in doing environmental type work that could sometimes feel threatening to the natural resource industry fund folks who had come from that world. And the community foundation contracted me to think through how do they create some funding strategies that will support these newer donors coming in but not fracture their organization so that the donors who have slightly different perspectives around this can also still have a home at the community foundation. And it took, it ended up, I said, oh, sure. I'd love to, I'd love to think through this. Cause I think you just heard my history is I love trying to figure through this exact question. And I thought it was going to be just a, a year contract and ended up being six years because it took a lot of conversation a lot of thinking things through. There were a lot of um, concerns that were understandable. And in the end, I was really proud of the fact that the organization created a giving circle specifically on environmental work so that the donors that care about that can really support it. I also created a, um, a special giving program, although it's not really a program, but it was a giving time, a thing that we were giving around water issues that seemed to bring a whole lot of people together. It was about local conservation work around water because of um, the fact that there's increasing droughts in the area I was. 
And so that was a really wonderful place because we could fund like a lot of different organizations that weren't even like stereotypically environmental groups to sort of think about conservation and community building. And now they have a full-time staffer. I worked myself out of the contract and they have a full-time staffer. They have a giving circle. Um, and it's, I'm really proud of that. I'm really, really proud of it. And I love it when I, um, you know, I don't think people really even know that I, you know, I was way behind the scenes. So I'll have people talk about this giving circle and there's now a lot of donors at it and everything. And I'm smiled to myself because it's great. So that's one piece that I'm really happy with. No, that's really cool. Um, you know, for, for those listening that they, they've listened to this conversation, they're taking away some nuggets, but they want to learn more, maybe connect with you, dig a little bit deeper. Um, what's the best way for, for them to connect with you? I'm glad you asked that. I am. Um, so I, this last couple of years, I developed this arm of my business so that I could be more available for folks. So I have something called a business, my business arm called do your good. And you can, it's, I have the, you can just look it up, www.doyourgood.com. And on there, I've got my free resources, mini courses. You can reach me um, pretty easily. I'm just Sybil at doyourgood.com. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook too with the at sign. I'm old enough to say at sign. I'm not sure what you actually call it. I should ask my kids that. The at sign, do your good, Facebook and Instagram. And I also have this weekly podcast too. That's so it's easy to like, I'm in the podcast, I'm exploring lots of things. Um, I'm interviewing people and I'm also talking, I have something called Sybil Speaks where I just sort of talk about stuff. A lot of times I'll talk about stuff around giving that I'm thinking about because I've just left a trustee meeting <laughs> where we've been tackling those issues. And I'm like, this is something everyone might want to hear about. <laughs> so, and I have enough clients that I can keep it all anonymous on their side, but I can still bring up some of those questions. So yeah, so that's how people can reach me. And I, I, I value the conversation and um, these little mini courses, I did little videos and they're not expensive, hopefully for folks. Um, and so they can just uh, listen, watch those videos. And then also I have free resources, like I said before, on that site. Awesome. That's great. I, I think this conversation alone is going to help a lot of people. So great. thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Thanks for having me. It's been delightful. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.